Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Katrina Lake. Katrina is the interim CEO and executive chairperson of Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that curates clothing for you based on your preferences. She founded it in 2011 when she was a 28-year-old Harvard Business School student. When Katrina took her company public in 2017, she became the youngest woman ever to do so. In our conversation today, we talked about that iconic moment when she rang the NASDAQ bell while holding her toddler in her arms. We also talked about the very early days of Stitch Fix and how Katrina pushed through moments of doubt as a leader, all while building a company culture and DNA that is still present today. I'm always fascinated and deeply inspired by how female founders and leaders approach this work differently. I've loved watching Katrina carve her own path over the years and also witnessing how she's paved the way for so many more. So let's get to my chat with Katrina Lake. Hi. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? How was the retreat for you? It was so great. It was really wonderful. It was such a good group of people. So Trina and I actually know each other from like a really long time ago and just haven't reconnected since. I've been like so proud of her from afar. And so it was really nice, like specifically to reconnect with her. And then of course, all the other people are wonderful. It was a lot of fun. I'm so glad that we do that. I think it's so important for women who are leading companies to get together and like have a safe space to whatever, you know, cry, have a drink, like get into it. I'm so grateful that you do it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you come. It was so amazing to see all of these freaking badass publicly traded company female CEOs, like you guys sitting at a table together. I got chills. I did too. These are hard jobs and it's so special to be able to be around other people that share that experience. And that's sort of part of my feeling. It's like this unraveling of this, the fabric of this is how we work in America. And really? women don't work the way that it's been laid out that we're supposed yeah. to. I, I really believe we work, as you know, so differently. Yeah. And I think it's actually like a paradigm shift that we are trying to create for everybody. The ways that women want to work are actually like, I think the ways people want to work, like yes. in general. So how do you define that? Like, how do you want to work? 
it's just so much more complicated now because I feel like historically it was about ambition and making money for your family. And like my mom's an immigrant. Like I understand some of the immigrant desire for like, but I think people just want purpose. They want meaning. They want connection. And, and I think people want to be able to feel like they can be their authentic selves, which like, I don't know how well that fits into like a 60 hour work week. You know, I feel like I have more and more of my friends who have seen you know, I mean, it's not like every, all my friends are publicly traded company CEOs. It's like, you know, who've seen some success and who are trying to figure out like, how can I have a job that has meaning that I love where I love the people I work with and I feel intellectually stimulated, but like, also can that not take over my life? It's an interesting challenge. And it ties a little bit to Stitch Fix because some of like our working from home stylist model, this is like pre-pandemic. Some of the insight that was drawn from that was that there were all of these, you know, largely women, but all of these you know, highly educated people who wanted community and connection and wanted to be contributing to the world in some kind of way. And that there was really very little work that was available to somebody who wanted to work 20 or 30 hours and do it from home and do it in a flexible way and flexible hours. And that's the stylist job at Stitch Fix was actually kind of trying to meet that opportunity. And and I think it did. And, and now that's a little bit more common given what's happened in the world. I think it continues to be a really interesting challenge of like, I do think more and more people are actually looking for meaningful, interesting work that, I don't know, isn't like a demanding slog of a job. Yeah. I imagine you had a lot of women who had retired, maybe not permanently, but from the workforce to have kids or a lot of the stylist women who were sort of trying to re-enter the workforce after having children. Yeah, it's all kinds, honestly. I think in the early days, like it it was a lot of mostly probably parents who had opted out of the workforce for some period of time and then found themselves with getting some of that time back as their kids got older and yeah. kind of figure it. And this is a way to be able to reenter the workforce and to be able to contribute and have connection with our clients. And it's fun and rewarding. And so I think that's part of it. But we have so many other profiles. It's like we have students, we have like people who have other full-time jobs. And this is like an incremental job where you can do something that's fun. There is a woman who she actually eventually switched to being a full-time stylist, but she was like an accountant and she was doing this as kind of her fun job. And then she eventually made it her core job. There's actually like so many different types of profiles, but I do think that some of the most underutilized high like labor market out there is that there are mm. lots and lots of women who are very educated, who are very capable, who want to contribute to the workforce in meaningful ways and don't have the right you know, format to do that. Yeah. I'm so curious about sort of the behind the scenes of Stitch Fix. So, so I know how it works, you know, the questionnaire and signing up and all of that piece. So these stylists are working at home and they're literally sitting there ideating out outfits for people. Is it weird? We could style a fix together. You want to do that? (laughs) Yeah. You want me to show you how to do that? We can try to talk about it out loud. Okay. Okay. As an example, so this is this is really like my account. Like I'm styling for this client named Heather. She lives in Berkeley, California. And you can see here that I know this client, she's like an executive. Like she mostly wants work clothes. Okay. I remember her. I style for her. And so you can kind of see this is her last fix, which is her 37th fix. Wow. Loyal you, customer. Yeah. Very loyal customer. And here she kept these really cute birdies. Birdies is a San Francisco company. And I know the CEO Bianca really well, just a shout out to Bianca, but these are really great flats. She kept this dress. She kept these pants. So you can see this cashmere sweater, this blazer. So you can see kind of like what she's kept historically. And then she also even gives feedback to say what she likes and what she doesn't like. And so then here, this interface here is showing what are the things that are recommended for her by the algorithm. And so right. the it is still a stylist who's like actually choosing the things, but it's kind of up to me what I choose. And the, But the algorithm is kind of giving me recommendations. And so like this blazer that I have in here is a 72% chance. This top, this blouse is a 70% chance. And so these are all the probability that she will keep the item. Based on the data of what she's bought and returned before. Exactly. It's based on like data about the product, about data about her. It's also data like really like at the intersection of her and that product. And so then as a stylist, I can kind of go through and I can do different filters. So say, you know, like, oh, she hasn't had 
I don't know, jeans in a while. So I can look at jeans or I can look at different categories of things. Yeah, I can look at jewelry. I can kind of like look by category. I can also like look at something and have that be inspiring. So then I can click into other things. And then once I've kind of selected the items that I want to send for her, then I'll write her a note that like, you know, explains what I chose and kind of builds that connection. And so we have blouses in there that are $38 or we have, you know, tank tops that are $27, right? So these are like very, you know, kind of, general price point items. Like these aren't luxury. It's an affordable luxury experience, but to be able to layer personal styling and to be able to pay a stylist to do this work is really made possible by technology and and data science. And, you know, now it's kind of sexy to say AI, but like it is, it's machine learning that helps us with that. And so, you know, the stylist doesn't have to spend her time looking through 48 blazers and trying to figure out herself, which one's most likely to work. The algorithm can do a lot of the work for for her and say like, okay, this blazer has a 72% chance of working with this client. And so it makes the stylist work more efficient. And so it makes us be able to deliver this, you know, kind of ostensibly higher end styling experience, but at a price point that many more people can afford. Obviously AI is like the buzzword beyond, but you've implemented machine learning a number of years ago. So is that the same thing as AI or how are they different and how were you so ahead of the curve? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, they're slightly different. We kind of talk about using data to be able to help our business be better, to make better decisions. Like we kind of broadly speak to that as data science. And so a lot of machine learning, which is really like being able to take, have lots of great data. And so a lot of what makes really great AI and machine learning is actually the quality of the data. And so like people say garbage in and garbage out with data. And so if you don't have a great learning model, then you're not going to be able to have great predictions. You're not going to be able to have great outcomes. So in our model, in that fix with Heather, like you could see, she was letting me know, I like this, I didn't like this. This is why this fit me well, or it didn't. And so we have have this incredibly high quality database of actual data of people trying clothes on that's very complete and very comprehensive. And so that allows us to be able to pump that all through a model that then can make really good predictions. And so that's largely machine learning. What's kind of fun in the AI space is like a lot of people have been talking about generative AI in terms of text, right? Where, you know, you throw something into chat GBT and it throws something out that sometimes sounds good sometimes sounds like your account was hacked, but you know, it can <laughs> kind of generate text for you. What one of the cool applications for us is we actually use generative AI for outfits. And so we will know that you have this pant in your closet. And then we actually use generative AI to, to generate outfits for you that are contextually right. The same way like ChatGPT is learning, like if you can learn from this great data set, like it's pairing things that like actually look good together. And it's kind of amazing because it enables us to be able to have this very scalable way for somebody to be opening their app and then seeing things that are personalized for them. It's things that they already own, things that they can buy, outfits that are recommended. And so, so that's like more of like an image-based generative AI that's like, you know, pretty unique and cool that we do. How did you get the idea for this? I mean, honestly, it's so simple as so many of these things are like, you've met me, I'm like five foot two. Like, <laughs> I'm not the tallest person in the world. So there's a lot of things that would look amazing on you that would not fit my body. And that was really some of the kind of inspiration behind it was just like, I would love to just know, like when I'm looking at a website, I would love to know, okay, like these styles are going to be better for somebody who's tall and these styles are not. And I would love to be able to even shop for like things that are going to be right for my style and my body shape. I have a sister who is like a buyer and she is still one of those people who always is shopping on the new arrivals and like knows all the cool brands and all the things. And so like, she would tell me like, oh, this brand is going to be great. Like it was founded by blah, blah, blah. And like, she would always send me recommendations. And so it was really the combination of those two experiences of like knowing, oh, and I had done, I'd done econometrics and I was not a data scientist by any stretch, but I loved like statistics and just loved data. And so Mm -hmm. it was kind of this marriage of like, okay, I know that data can be applied to this category. Mm -hmm. And then also there's this like, you know, kind of insider unique, you know, kind of human element that's really important. And like, how do we combine those things? And so So yeah, the idea was really kind of from a place of personal experience and knowing that, you know, there was really exciting stuff that was happening in this space and that, you know, we could be one of the first to be able to apply it to apparel and and that that it ultimately would have a better 
you know, user experience, right? It's like, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, we get to have this like really great intersection where like, on the one hand, we're like not saving lives, but like, we're making lives a lot better. And like, yeah. it's like a really fun space to be able to play in because it's, you know, it's a category that I think feels light and fun, but it's actually really meaningful. Like it makes mm-hmm. a really big difference when people get to walk out of their homes, feeling like their best self and get to present themselves in a way that helps them to feel confident in their best. You know, it really does. And this is where I actually don't think that fashion is frivolous in that sense. Like I think women are expressive about who they are through their clothing, their makeup, their jewelry. I think it's so important for us to have a way to express ourselves and clothing really can determine how we feel. I mean, it's just cultural, right? Especially if someone's helped put you together, which is the value prop you offer. It can really impact your confidence. It really can. And like your confidence really can impact all these really meaningful points in your life, in your career. You think about like, I don't know, showing up to see your friends when you feel like you're in a frumpy outfit and you're not in a good mood (laughs) and then you're like meeting new people. So many doors are opened up by being able to feel that confidence and to be able to feel, you know, comfortable in your skin. And so I think to be able to know that we get to share in so many of those moments with, you know, millions of people is like a really fun and special part of our business. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb dot com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Will you tell me a little bit about the early, early, early like startup days of Stitch Fix and and what that was like and and kind of how it felt at the different inflection points? Like did you ever imagine that you were gonna IPO? Were you ambitious like that to start with? Did you hold a big vision like that? It's so funny you ask that. And I kind of like fault myself in this. And hopefully this is part of the change that I can create because like the honest truth, I was just with Trina Spear who runs Figs and we were actually talking about how like, I mean, she knew me when I was starting the company and like, I actually had like a business plan, like in a, you know, Word document that I like typed up and I was rereading it. I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I just didn't dream as big as as it became, you know, like, I think to me, like the biggest outcome that I could imagine was like, oh, maybe we could do like a hundred million dollars in revenue. And that would be like wildly successful. And to be clear, it felt like that when we did, but I didn't start it thinking like, and then someday I'm going to go public and then blah, blah, blah. And we're going to do billions of dollars. Like that was really not like in the original business plan. And so, you know, I, hopefully other people can be thinking bigger because I wish I, the advice I could give myself back then would be to think bigger than what I was thinking at the time. But, you know, in the really early days, what's kind of cool about this business was that you could kind of like test and try and and feel it out. And so like in the very early days, like we we always kept data about about the apparel and about people. And like on a spreadsheet or like, like literally how- on a spreadsheet. I was just going to say like before we had real data science, we kept track of everything in a spreadsheet where we had people, we had the attributes of the clothes. We actually had, it was not an algorithm, but it, it was more of like a filter where it just made sure that we didn't send you colors you didn't hate or whatever. And then we kept all the feedback. And so that whenever we could actually have real data science, we knew that the data and the data model was going to be important. So the very early days were really like just in spreadsheets. We did our fulfillment out of our office, which was like a 1200 square foot office on Market Street in San Francisco. We hired Mike Smith, who was like over the years, he was president, COO, CFO, he served like every role, but he had been the COO of walmart.com. Now I'm so embarrassed thinking back to like, I just, I don't even think I realized how crazy it was at the time, but he was like, 
the CEO of walmart.com. He ran like millions of square feet of warehouses all over the country. And we had met a couple of times and he was interested in the business. And I was like, just so excited that he would even meet with me much less like talk about working together. And we called it on manic Mondays. Cause basically we did all of our shipments on Mondays and then we all resumed our day jobs on Tuesdays. And so it didn't matter if you were like an inventory planner or whatever your job was at Stitch Fix on Monday, you were on the line getting fixes out the door. And he insisted on coming from Manic Monday. We had all these like cabinets and drawers and like printed out pack slips on a, like a, you know, Epson printer or whatever. Like it was, it was wild. And I would get there like six in the morning. Like I would take the very first bus that I could take to downtown. I'd be on the first bus, be there at like six in the morning, get everything set up. And depending on how many shipments we had, it would be like, you know, eight or nine at night. But so much of what we did, like, I think we benefited some from that too, because I just think like we had a very early stage, like there was just really clear product market fit where it was just like, you know, people were screaming for this product to exist. And so even when the experience didn't look awesome, even when we had such limited inventory that like, if we're honest, like, I don't even know that the fix was as good as we knew it could be later. Like, you know, even in those days, people continue to get fixes. People continue to like give us feedback people continue to share the word. Like we, we didn't do any kind of paid marketing for the first hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue because so much of the growth was just through organic word of mouth, people telling other people. And so, you know, the first few years were very much like we were just trying to build things as fast as we can to catch up with demand, but it definitely felt very validating to be able to have that strong product market fit and like to kind of be able to know, like we deserve to have a place in this world. Yeah. Were you bootstrapping it? And what was, what is the kind of capital raising process been like for you in the yeah, early days? I, I actually started while I was in business school in 2011 was when like we incorporated the company. It was my second year of business school. And I'm actually not like a founder that had a million startup ideas and had a lemonade stand. Like, this is like my idea. Like, this is my one thing. (laughs) And and I, I was just very obsessed with like, how can you use data in this space? And I actually would have happily worked for like, if if somebody the year before me had started Stitch Fix, like I probably would have gone to work for that person. Like I I was just interested in this problem. But my goal was like, I, you know, I was going through business school. I was incurring debt. I was like, if I can be funded and paying myself a salary the day I graduate, then I can do this crazy startup thing. But like, if I can't do that, then I'll take whatever normal job that would hire an MBA and that will be great too. And so I was very focused on just making sure we had that validation and frankly, that I had a paycheck and I could start paying down my student loans. So who did you pay for the first like in- inventory buys? Well, yes and no. Now we're getting into the really embarrassing stuff. So the, <laughs> <laughs> the original testing that I did, I before we went to venture money, like I did some experimentation and testing because I wanted to be able to have data to present to a VC, right? And so to do that, I was using my own credit cards and I was, I mean, this is embarrassing. I was literally buying and returning product from boutiques <laughs> and I would keep a spreadsheet of like, some of them had a 14 day return policy, some of them had a 30 day. And I was basically like matching it. I was buying the inventory, then matching it to people and then selling it to them in their homes. And like, if I didn't sell the thing, I would like go back and return it. I know. No, it's amazing. (laughs) What? This is great. This is like innovation. Like I've never heard of. I love it. And so I had like a credit card with like a $6,000 limit that like I was always having to manage that limit. And that's how I was doing that in the beginning days. So I wasn't making money doing that to be clear, right? Like I'm buying it from the boutique and then I'm selling it to people for the same. So like, I wasn't even making money doing that, but at least it was proving to me like, oh, this can work or like, you know, this part doesn't work. And then when I went to raise money in 2011, like got a term sheet, actually it was on Valentine's day of 2011, got a term sheet, but like- From Steve Anderson, who is Baseline Venture. So he's like an angel. You know, this was back in the day when you could start a business with like less than a million dollars. It was like a $500,000 term sheet. (laughs) It was great. And this was in 2011. But you know, what's funny is like, they say we're going to do this. And then the money doesn't hit your bank until like months later. And like, I don't think I fully understood that. And so like, I'm like, oh, we got a term sheet. We're good. We're off to the races. So we started buying inventory. And then I realized like, oh, like I don't, I don't have a corporate card. Like I don't even have a corporate bank account that has any money in it yet. And so I was basically like spending my money on rent. Like the day when the funding hit from Steve, like if the funding had been like a couple more 
more weeks, I was going to have to go like ask people for loans. Like I was like spending my, you know, rent money to kind of pre-fund the business. And then I had to go to Steve afterwards and be like, Hey, like, just so you know, so you don't think this is sketchy. I've incurred these business expenses before the money funded. So now I have to reimburse myself. And it sounds weird that I'm going to have to write a check to myself from the company account. But like, just so you know, here are the receipts. And he was like, it's totally fine. Those are all the kind of, you know, moments people don't really talk about. (laughs) Incredible. So people ask this all the time, like, how do I grow a business? How do I start it? How do I get it in front of somebody? And it sounds like it was really effective for you to prove your case, even, even in a small way, but you, you did prove enough that there was product market fit, even if it was just like in a few people. In retrospect, Like, I don't even know that the data of that is that compelling, but probably what is compelling about it is like showing like, oh, you can get something off the ground. You're willing to do the work and like, you you know how to think about data. Like it was obviously a super small sample set, but also a little bit me. I'm more risk averse. Like I want to know the data. I also, I had alternate career decisions that I could have made. Right. And so like, I felt like there was opportunity cost. I'm like, if I'm going to do this crazy startup thing, like I better really believe it. And I better like really, really know there's a business here. And so- I was definitely doing the work to prove it to a VC, but I was also proving it to myself because like I could have gone and taken, you know, some other corporate job. Did you get a bunch of rejections when you were getting that, looking for oh, that? Oh, so money? many. Oh my gosh. I have like a spreadsheet full of wow. rejections. Um, I found that when I went out to start raising some money for Goop, and obviously it's different because like I didn't go to HBS and Stanford and I had had this career as an actress. So I I understand why people were skeptical. But I did find that a lot of these, I would go into these rooms, you know, on Sand Hill Road and the guys would be like, oh, my wife, you know, really likes you or she reads Goop and can I get a selfie with you? I love, you know, the Royal (laughs) Tenenbaums. And then that was it. Like I didn't get funded. And at a certain point I thought, you know, that I understood. But once the business is actually growing and our unit economics were good. I still had a really hard time. I still had a hard time explaining to men like what the value of Goop was, for example. And sometimes with some of our friends and colleagues who are running businesses that are by women for women, I feel like almost like there's a discount or we get dinged or it's harder and so I, was that your experience at all? That resonates so much. I had so much of the same experience without the selfies. Nobody wanted a <laughs> selfie with me. <laughs> it's hard to unpack. I remember I had um, a VC who, I, I mean, I really respect this guy, but like, it was really one of the hardest rejections. To your point, it was like the business had traction. Like we were like, I mean, we were growing without marketing spend, like the, you economics were great. The contribution was great. Like, I mean, everything about it was great. And, you know, we got to the final round, we came into the presentation of the partners. And like, at the end, he was like, look, like, I love my job. I love being a VC, like, blah, blah. He's like, at the end of the day, I only get to take like one or two board seats a year. And he was like, and I just like, I I want that to be a company that like I go to sleep thinking about and I wake up thinking about. And he was like, I just can't feel like I'm going to like go to sleep thinking about like women's clothes and waking up thinking about women's clothes. And I was just like, oh, Oh, that cuts so deep. It's not enough for me to find like that my business is working. It's like, that's not enough. Like I have to find someone that like is, is deeply passionate about like the specific thing that I'm selling. And to be clear, like, you know, it's on me that it could have been more about personalization. It could have been more about whatever. Like I could have probably told a more compelling story in that way, but you know, Mm. he was, he was just like honest enough to admit that to me. But I think Mm -hmm. lots of people think that way. You know what I mean? Where it's like, they, they are going to be spending their time on this category and on this business. And as long as we have like the dynamics that we have around people in positions of control over capital, like that type of bias exists. And on the same vein, um, a few years later, like a reporter told me that he would ask VCs, which company did you totally miss on? And like Stitch Fix was the number one company that he would hear. And I was like, that's great. Is it? I don't know. Is that a compliment? Is it not? Like, you know, it's so frustrating because I think people can both see that they're missing the opportunity and people know that. And at the same time, I think there is something that's like, that's in all of us, right? Maybe I wouldn't be that excited to like fund something that has less to do with me personally. You know what I mean? Like, I I think I can understand that, but that's also why representation is so important. It's just like, if we don't have representation, which is not just about gender, I mean, it's about all types of, it's like, 
you know, it's about people, what type of backgrounds people come from, like people who come from like rich families and people who don't like people who obviously come from all different parts of the world, people who come from, of course, all different ethnicities, like all of that representation matters because they're just is a lot of bias that is happening, even if people don't want to admit to it, that is leading to it being more difficult for underrepresented people to be able to get the funding for their companies, even when their companies are working and the, and the business is good. You know, it's just like, it's a really frustrating dynamic. Yeah. It's also pretty, you know, it's like in that situation, the, that, that guy is like, you know, it's also important for diverse founders to have that voice on the board as well, right? 100%, of the guy that's totally. like, I, to- I don't really get it. So what about this? And what about that? I'm not the customer. So like, but I'm seeing this in the data or that, you know, it, that's important for us as well. A hundred percent. And to be clear, like, you know, I've been very lucky that like I have like the two primary investors that were investors in Stitch Fix are both men who act like that, but also like now they can be part of the business. We have a men's business and they definitely got excited about other elements of the business. And I have men on my board who have been great contributors and, and get it. But I mean, that rejection in particular was just a really rough one. Cause I was like, oh, wow. Like I, what else can I do? Like, Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code InnerCircle to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Did you ever have moments of doubt when you were growing this huge company? Were you like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, how did I get here? Like when you're at you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Did you ever have those moments where you were like, how did this happen? Or were you just like super confident? I mean, I'm, I'm having a moment like that right now, sitting across from you, GP, like there's so many pinch me moments that I have along the way, because there's like lots of points in time where I was like, what am I doing? I've never done this before. But I will say that like, you know, one of the things that has been really positive about like a community of it's not really even just women, but like certainly the, you know, female CEO community, like there aren't a whole lot of us who are publicly traded company CEOs and founders and, and we're close. And those are people that I feel like I can talk to really candidly and that we're all together. You're, we're all figuring it out. And you realize that. And I would say that even as we were going public, there are a couple public company CEOs who like got my cell phone number and texted me and were just like, hey, like, I know this week is intense. We had the same thing with blah, blah, blah. And like, people were just like reaching out and offering to help. And so, you know, I would say that like, there's so many moments where I, I felt like I don't belong or like, what am I doing here? But I think at the same time, I've also been really lucky, I think, of like being able to also have these these points of reference where people were really vulnerable and people were really open and like, where, you know, I think I can feel like I have my own self-doubt, but then I also get to see that reflected in somebody else that I see as being like amazing. And so I don't know. So I feel like, yes, but I think at the same time, I feel just like so extra grateful, I think, for the people who along the way have shown me vulnerability and reached out and like, you know, helped me to see that like, yeah, I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing, but that like lots of other people feel the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Who's on your short list of people that you call? Whitney from Bumble for sure. 
And actually like Sarah Fryer was somebody who like, oh, I feel so indebted to her. Sarah Fryer is the CEO of Nextdoor. She had been the CFO of Square. And like, I really had only met her once or twice, but like Square had had a very challenging IPO. And then they came out of the IPO and things were great. This is like so long ago. Now Square is called Block. But she, I remember she had told me that story. And so like the night with the IPO, like everybody thinks of the IPO as being this like big, happy moment. And like, it was really stressful. Like for like a week, we went out and did a roadshow and the roadshow was like not all that successful. And like, you know, we were going to price below the range and, you know, it felt disappointing when it really should have felt positive. And like the night before the IPO, like I called her in my hotel room and I was like, I'm so sorry. Do you have time to talk tonight? And it was like 11 o'clock where I was, but I was on central time. So it was probably nine o'clock in California. And she was like, of course. And so I called her and I literally called her crying. And I was just like, you know, I, this week's been so hard and it's so hard to get investors understanding and interested in our business in 45 minutes. And we're not overbooked or whatever. And like, we're, we're going to price below the range. And I was just like, I literally called her crying and I'd only met her like once or twice before. And she like picked up my phone call, like talked through everything with me and just like, you know, said all the right things. And like, I was able to go into the next day, really like confident and optimistic and all the things. And like, I credit her so much for that, just for even like picking up my phone call in the first place. And so those are two people that come to mind quickly, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice to like the many, many other women who have helped me and and men too, who've helped me along the way that have been a phone call away and have been able to, you know, provide words of wisdom or sometimes just listen when I need it. Mm. And I want to talk about the moment you went public because it was so iconic and iconoclastic. (laughs) You were holding your baby. How old was he? He was one and change. So he was one and So like baby toddler. Yeah. When you rang the bell and everyone was like completely marveled at it. And I think if I'm not mistaken at the time you were the youngest female ever to take a company public is that correct mm-hmm. yep and then Whitney would come here and then after. good old wit came after yep. <laughs> and she broke your record didn't she by a little she bit did. she did I was very happy to pass the torch <laughs> no one better to pass the torch to that's true so will you tell me about that moment where people like wait you can't bring your baby did you get pushback tell me about that You know, what's so funny is that like, it actually links to that call with Sarah Fryer. And I wish I could remember like exactly what she told me, but what I took away from her pep talk was just like, you have a lot to be proud of. Like, this is your moment. Like tomorrow's going to be a great day. And like in the long run, it's not going to matter what the price was today. That was kind of what I, what the takeaway was. And the way that came to life for me was I was like, we're going to do this our way. And so like when you do an IPO, it's like a wedding. You take this picture, then you take this picture, then you take this picture and it's this team and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, you know, fuck it. Like we're all getting on the stage together and including my like toddler baby was being actually like very well behaved and easy. And I had done like some opening statements with like him on my hip while he was like eating a bagel and like, and somehow like, and that was meant for just like the internal audience and like, And that went great. And so I was kind of like, I want him up here with me. And so then like my husband came up and, and that was it. And honestly, it it kind of was because like things weren't quite going the way that we'd hoped they would go the week before that suddenly I felt super empowered to be like, well, like, this is the full me. This is the full picture. Exactly. And it's just like, you know, we're going to do things our way. And like, this is the way we're going to do it. And so that happened the day of like, that was not planned. Like there was no even seed in my mind that like, this is going to be something that could end up being on Twitter and, you know, retweeted and all the things. And like, that was never at all the intention. It was important to me to be able to share that moment with all the people that I really cared about. And And it was such a deeply inspiring moment. And I love those moments in culture where women decide to do something, whether it just sort of happens or not, where everyone kind of reframes the way they think about something, you know, you get like a recalibration. It was definitely one for me. I definitely, I didn't know you then. I was so psyched about that moment. And it's so funny because it's not even about the IPO that feels so emotional to me, but like the fact that that picture was so meaningful to people, like still like means so much to me that I got the privilege to be able to be part of that for people is just like, I mean, a great honor. So you somehow miraculously got the company through COVID and then you decided to step down. Was it in 2021? 
In, yes, it was August of 2021. And what precipitated you feeling like you could step down? Were you like, I'm done. I did what I came here to do. I mean, it had been a crazy 10 years, right? Like a crazy 11 years. And I like, I felt really proud of what I had done. I felt super excited about what the capabilities we had and what the company could do in the future. And, you know, I felt a little bit of like probably apprehension around like, am I really the right person to lead the next chapter? And then candidly, I also, you know, probably felt I mean, I don't even want to say burned out because it's not like I was like so burned out that blah, blah, blah. But I just felt like I didn't have like the appropriate level of energy kind of that like was was needed for the next chapter. And like I wanted to have like I could remember what it felt like in those early years of Stitch Fix when I was like on that 6 a.m. bus and super excited to be doing this and that and blah, blah, blah. I would have moments of excitement for sure, but I just didn't feel like like I could bring that every day. And so it was probably like kind of a combination of those two things that that led me to to look for a new CEO then and bring somebody on. And then now is, you know, we're kind of in the same situation now where I'm I'm in CEO again, but I'm interim. And I would say that now I really feel conviction that like, you know, it's it's both of those things, but I also feel like I've been meeting people that you know, can be our potential next CEO. And, and it's been really, really inspiring to be able to see kind of what the level of talent that we can get and what that could mean for the next chapter of Stitch Fix. And so I'm really proud of what I did in the first 10, 11 years. And at the same time, I'm super excited for another leader to be able to take the company forward into the future. Was it hard for you to step back in? Yeah, kind of. There's a lot of apprehension and I was just like, how much has changed? Has the culture changed? Like, have the people changed? Like, what is this going to be like? Am I going to be able to get back into the swing of things? And I would say that actually mostly there were like a lot of really positive surprises. Like there were a lot of people that were hired while I was gone. And like, these people were fantastic. I came in wondering, like, is this going to feel like my team? Am I going to feel like this is my company? And like, you know, it, it really did. And I think Like it was really powerful to see like how the culture of a company just continues to live on, right? What would you say are the things that need to be set up in order for like a founder's vision to carry on after they go? How does the soul and heart and mission of of a company, how can it stay and be amplified without the founder there? I mean, first of all, no matter what it is, the culture of a company is is strong. And, and I think like in some ways pretty hard to change. And I think with Stitch Fix in my kind of early days, like we were really good about being really clear about what the culture was and having a set of practices and, and just like ways that we brought the culture to life in everyday things. And I would say that even like that that culture, I was very surprised to find like largely still existed. And, you know, even without me, like the the culture, like the vibe, like the types of people we brought on, like all of that still felt like it really had continued. You know, I think the part that like, and this is really less about the founder, but I do think, and to be clear, I wish I've done a better job of this more recently too, but I do think like the connection to the client and the business is the part that you really do have to like keep on practicing when you're looking at numbers and you're looking at dashboards and whatever. I think it can be easy to like not be thinking about how those numbers are the accumulation of thousands and millions of people and the actions and experiences they have. And so, you know, I think there are things just around practices around how do you bring forward the client experiences? How do you, like, I was just showing you a fix, like I style fixes. Like I, how many of those do you, are you currently doing? I style, if I'm honest, like one or two a week, I can go back and look at my stats. So fun. It is really fun. And you get feedback from these clients. I got feedback like last week, I got feedback from the client was 17 years old and her mom, like she wrote a comment and the, her mom popped in. Her oh. oh my gosh. It was so sweet. She's like, wow, did you nail this for her? The shorts and jeans are amazing. It's hard to find a good fit for her. She looks fantastic in the tops and then all caps. Thank you. Like I really like almost cried. I feel like any yeah. time I have a bad day, like that's what I like to do. I like to go back and read those. And it's a reminder that like, Hey, we have a real impact on people's lives. You have to nurture both the company culture and also that connection to the business and the client. I think that both of those things like absolutely can live on without the founder. I think it is about like, how do you build the daily practices? It used to be like a thing that like everybody at the company should be styling fixes and you're connected to the stylist experience and you're connected to the client experience. And as we think about like performance reviews, we look at those through the lens of our culture. And so, you know, I think you can set up ways in which 
you're making the culture not just words on a page, but actually manifesting those into behaviors and practices. And oh, is it like you have sort of a manifesto? Do you have, you know, pillars, your values? Like how, how do you execute that? Yeah, I mean, it is like it is having values and then having practices that like kind of live through those. I mean, things like performance reviews as an example. When I was running the company, like one of our values was responsibility. And like, if you think about responsibility, it means like I'm responsible for my own development. I'm responsible for my own growth. And so what would a performance review look like in that world? You probably would be gathering your own feedback and you would actually be like developing your own plan for growth and you, you wouldn't need a performance review to tell you those things. And so like, Mm. it's like, that's like an example of one of those like values that turns into a practice of just saying like, okay, if everybody is fully living responsibly, actually like they're self-generating a review. So they're actually going to their peers and asking for feedback and then figuring out what their development plan is and then sharing that back with you. Were people like really honest with one another, colleagues, like at the same level and able to give constructive feedback? And that's a great follow-up question. And so we trained people in sharing feedback because it was, we found that like for some people it was great and for some people it was challenging. And so we had a whole training around feedback about how to receive feedback, how to give feedback. It wasn't perfect for sure, Mm -hmm. but I think that's a good example of, you know, how do you look through the lens of your values and think about what are the things that we do every day? And like, are the things that you would do differently for your company because you have different values than another company and how can, you know, how can those come to life? Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Did you learn anything about yourself? through this process, like not as a business leader, not as like, oh, I can operate better if I do this, but through the process of building a company, did you ever have a moment where you're like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm conditioned to be a person who does this and I'm holding myself back in this way. Like, meaning did the business reflect back to you an area of personal growth that you were able to, you know, understand and learn from? For me, I really do think it's like my main learning was really around leadership. I never really thought of myself as a leader. Like nobody ever said to me like, oh, you're going to be like a CEO someday or you're going to be like a president someday or something like no one ever said those things to me. I never identified that way. And so, you know, my style is like, you know, I, I say the word like a lot, like I'm very conversational. It never occurred to me to try to like pretend to be a quote unquote leader. It just wasn't even something I tried to do. And so- Anyway, I think very early on, I realized that like, actually, like the way that I talk and the way that I connect with people, it actually is leadership. It's just like a very different kind of leadership. And now, you know, we associate that with like vulnerability and connection and all those types of things. And like, I think for a while, I kind of saw it as like a weakness that like I wasn't Mm. a traditional leader and I didn't show up in whatever way and people didn't experience me in a leadery way. And then what I learned like a few years in was like, it was, it was actually a superpower because it really allowed me to be able to build trust and connection with people really quickly because I was able to show up in a way that people can connect with and people can, you know, feel like we know each other really quickly. And, and so anyway, so I think like just really being able to understand that like my lack of leaderiness and, you know, kind of relying more on vulnerability and just being what I know how to be, which is myself, was actually a leadership skill and one that actually I could develop and hone and, you know, really make a superpower of mine. That was like a really interesting revelation for me, I think. Mm -hmm. And 
And, you know, over the years, I've kind of doubled down on it. I like that I can have paved my own path of like, this is what a leader looks like. And that I don't look like, you know, like a dude in a suit. Yeah, totally. In such a beautiful way. And I swear I'm going to let you go soon, but I just want to know how, how comfortable you are with having difficult conversations at work. Like if somebody's not performing or they're disappointed because they, you know, wanted a, a change in a role or more responsibility allocated to them and they don't get it. Like, how are you with that? And what are your tips? Actually in business school, we did like, you could second year, you could like make up your class and do it with your friends and do like a thing. And my friends and I did a class called difficult conversations where we literally acted out difficult conversations. And we had like wow. reading materials and like every week we would get together and we had these two chairs and we would like literally act out difficult conversations. And I mean, I don't even know that we realized at the time, like how important and valuable that yeah. was. Like, I think if you're in the practice of sharing feedback, like you're actually always in direct conversations. And so if you're sharing feedback frequently, then like the hard thing to say is actually not that hard because you've actually like talked about it a few times. And to me, to be able to have the most direct conversation and then to be able to, at the same time, be empathetic and be able to see things from somebody else's perspective and be able to have that in the back of your mind, like- the honest truth is like, I've had so many of those difficult conversations and like, you know, some of them were like a little sweaty in the moment, but like, I don't look back. I mean, maybe there's a couple, but most of them, I don't look back with any regret. Like, I think, you know, most of the time, like at the end of the day, it might be talking about like, okay, it's the right thing to part ways and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out like it was the right thing to part ways. And I think also like for me to be able to think through too, if somebody's, you know, kind of skills and hard work is not translating to value here. Like I'm like diminishing their career by keeping them here. Like, because there are other places and other opportunities that might be a better fit for like what they can bring. And I do think having a lot of experience helps with having difficult conversations. They can still be painful in the moment. But I also think like, I always remind myself like you having the conversation is so much better than not. Okay. So final question for you. You're looking for a CEO to fill your shoes at Stitch Fix. And then what is going to be next for you? Mm, that's a great question. You know, honestly, like I have some board seats. I'm nominated to join the board of Recruit Holdings, which is actually a holding company that's based in Japan, which owns Indeed.com, among other things that people might recognize. So I'm really excited to have some experience with, I'm half Japanese. And so this gives me the opportunity. And to you speak fluent Japanese, which I feel I, like a lot of people don't know. <laughs> that's true. A little rusty, but technically fluent. And so I'm really excited about that and the opportunity to learn more about kind of a business in an international context and Japanese corporate governance and all that kind of stuff. And I'm also on the board of Glossier and of course with Stitch Fix. And so, you know, I have enough board stuff right now that keeps me like excited and engaged, but I don't know, like stay tuned. Like I'm, I just turned 40. I'm like, you know, too young to retire. I'm not retired. And like <laughs> there, there will be another chapter of my life, but I also like, I just, you know, I want some space. My kids are young. They're like six, four and one and a half, almost two. And it's like a pretty fun, although crazy, hectic, but it's also a fun time to spend time with them. And so, you know, I'm just kind of looking forward to having a little bit more flexibility in my life and, and there'll be another chapter someday, but I have no idea what that will be. Oh, great. Well, I love once again, that you're, you know, cutting your own path and the way you're doing this. And it's so great. I have so, so much admiration for you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with Katrina Lake. If you're curious about Stitch Fix, head to stitchfix.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.